0: Good morning. Welcome once again to Hiawatha. So, about three or four months ago, uh, during one of the OT meetings, Chris was kind of going over the preaching schedule for the rest of Matthew. He tends to plan it out pretty far in advance so that every week he's not having to figure out what the next passage is. And so, we were looking at it, and it was right before his sabbatical, figuring out who would be preaching while he was gone. And I was looking ahead and saw this passage and I thought, ooh, it'll be really fun to listen to this sermon because I have no idea what I would do with this passage. It's a really weird passage because you've got one of the few times in the Bible where the main character of the Bible isn't present. And that would be Jesus because he's dead. And it's not like passage when you're preaching the crucifixion where he's still alive and things are happening and he's saying words and you can focus on that. And it's not like the resurrection, which happens after, where he rises from the dead and all the cool stuff with that. Spoiler alert, by the way, Jesus is going to rise from the dead next week. So, and if you didn't know that, I'm not sorry for telling you, because it's a great thing to know. But this passage, he's dead, and he's not, like, he's not doing anything in the passage. It's all other people reacting to his death and doing stuff, and it's like, yeah, that's interesting, and it's interesting to study, but how do you preach that? Where's the preaching point? (laughs) So, And then ironically, God in his wisdom and sense of humor said, hey, guess who's preaching that passage? So, but it was really good because those of you who uh, who do teaching or preaching know that when you have to study something and prepare, you usually get more out of it even than uh, the people you communicate it to. So for me, it was good to study and prepare for this passage and got a lot of cool stuff out of it. So without further ado, we are in Matthew. We are almost at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We have three sermons left, including this one. And we are, uh, we have moved past where Jesus is declaring and demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom into the Passion of the Christ. That is where we are. And today's sermon is titled, Sitting Opposite the Tomb. That title comes from the passage, which you'll see as we read through it, but also Uh, For us, that's kind of what we're doing in this passage. We get to observe everything that happens kind of happens around the tomb and around Jesus' burial in today's passage, and we get to sit there and observe different people interact with Jesus' body and interact with the tomb and uh, interact with other people and see some pretty cool stuff from that. So Matthew 27, verses 57 through the end of the chapter. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said when he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Jesus, we thank you for your death and your resurrection. We thank you too for this passage and for your burial and what it shows about you and about the people in the story. Uh, Pray that uh, you would be glorified through your word today. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at a couple different characters in the story. We're going to start with Joseph, since the passage starts with Joseph, and uh, we learn a few things from Joseph in this passage, and then we learn some more from the other Gospels. Uh, all four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John—tell the story of Jesus' life, and they all tell they tell the same story, but they focus on different aspects in some parts. But near the end, they all tell the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's cool to preach one of the Gospels because you can preach the one you're in, and then you can look at the other three and kind of fill out the story a little bit. So we'll do that a little. So from this passage, we learn two things about Joseph. One, that he was a rich man from Arimathea, and Arimathea was a town in Judea. We don't really know anything else about it besides that. He was rich, which seems like it's kind of an extra throwaway comment, but it'll become kind of important as we move further through this paragraph. And then the second is that he was a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew just leaves it at that. Mark, Luke, and John fill out a few more details, though. John 19 tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. So he wasn't a disciple of Jesus who made that publicly known. Uh, he kept it kind of under wraps because he was afraid of the Jewish authorities. One of the reasons he may have been afraid, Mark 15 tells us that Joseph was a prominent member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So Joseph of Arimathea was actually part of the body of people who conspired to get Jesus crucified. Which, you know, if you're part of the council that wants to kill Jesus, it's understandable why you wouldn't necessarily tell people you're a fan of his. Mark 15 and Luke 23 tell us that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he expected the kingdom of God to come. He expected God to come and do something. He was eagerly waiting for and anticipating this. And Luke 23 tells us, uh, finally, that Joseph had not consented to the decision to crucify Jesus. So the decision sometimes in the Gospels is kind of presented as this unanimous thing, but it wasn't. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of this council And he had not consented, he did not agree with the decision to crucify Jesus. But obviously one man against the council, there's nothing he could do about it. And for the plan of God, Jesus had to uh, die and be crucified. So uh, even if he had tried, there would have been nothing he could have done to change it. So that's what we know about Jesus, or Jesus, about Joseph. Little bits of uh, information about him. And now we're going to move through this paragraph, and there's a lot of cultural stuff that's happening here that you don't really pick up on, just reading through, uh, that just shows some really cool stuff about what's going on here. And we're going to start with when it was evening. All right, telling what time it is, that's great. Why do I care? Uh, This passage, this paragraph specifically, think of it kind of like an action movie without explosions or gunfire. They are racing the clock. And the fact that it says when it was evening shows that they're getting down to the wire. The reason is Jesus was crucified on Friday. So earlier in Matthew, uh, the previous week, it says that he was hung on the cross and he was up there around noon and he died around 3 p.m. on Friday. Now the Jewish Sabbath, which is the Jewish holy day, was actually Saturday, not Sunday. But their days go from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., not midnight to midnight. And so the Sabbath started Friday night at 6 p.m. And for various reasons, which we'll talk about in a minute, they had to have Jesus' body off the cross and in a tomb before the Sabbath. Because once the Sabbath hit, they couldn't do that anymore. They would have to wait until Saturday night when the Sabbath ended. So they're racing the clock to get Jesus off the cross and in the tomb before about 6 p.m. The Sabbath started at sundown, which would have been about 6 at this time of year. So they are racing the clock. one of the reasons that they, had, that they couldn't leave Jesus' body hanging on the cross. From Deuteronomy 21, uh, part of the Old Testament law, God writes through Moses, If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty, and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Which tells us two things. One that Jesus, being hung on a tree and crucified as the method of his death, was cursed by God on the tree, which was part of him taking on the sin of the world, taking the punishment that was due us for our sin against God. But also, according to Old Testament law, they couldn't leave his body hanging on the cross overnight. They had to take it down the same day and get it buried, which is tricky when you don't die till 3 p.m. and you have to have it done by 6 p.m. That's not a very large window of time. Um... So, because of the Deuteronomy thing and because of the Sabbath, that had to happen. So, Joseph comes and he goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Again, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Pilate is the Roman authority in uh, that area. And when someone was crucified, to get a body for burial, you had to get permission from Rome since they're the ones that did the crucifixion. So, all right, he goes to Pilate, no big deal. But asking for the body is a big deal for a couple reasons. One... Don't forget that uh, the crime Christ was committed or accused of and sentenced to death for was high treason against Rome. High treason. King of the Jews. The Jewish authorities came to Pilate and said, Hey, there's this guy going around claiming to be king. You've all, we've already got a ruler that's Caesar. I mean, you can't have two kings. And so he was executed for treason. This is potentially dangerous for Joseph to then go and ask for the body of someone who's committed treason, thereby associating himself with Jesus. You, know, you might ask Pilate, and Pilate says, Wait, so you want to take and bury and show a sign of respect to this guy who committed treason against the Roman Empire? Just let me write your name down. The secret police will be calling on you tomorrow night. Don't worry about it. Go about your day. So there's potential risk in associating with Jesus uh, from the Roman side, there's also potential risk in exposing himself more publicly that he cares about Jesus from the Jewish side with the ruling council. So there's that whole thing. The other thing is, uh, so in ancient times when people were crucified, uh, usually ro- the corpses were left to rot on the crosses. So it wasn't like you were crucified. When you died, they took you down. They left the corpses up there to rot as a deterrent. You know, if someone's walking by, they see a half-rotten corpse on a cross. And then you can look up and usually the charge against the person was written above the cross. So you walk by, you see, oh, that's really gross and disturbing. What was he accused of? High treason. Note to self, don't commit high treason against Rome if you don't want to end up crucified. So there was that piece of it. The corpses were not usually allowed to be taken down. They were left to rot. Now, a family member could apply to the local Roman authorities and ask to have the body taken down. Those requests were almost always granted, uh, except in the case of high treason. In the case of high treason, those requests were almost always refused. It's like, no, these people tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. They're going to hang up there, and they're going to rot up there, and they're going to be a reminder to everyone that walks by, don't defy the Roman Empire. Because if you do, this is how you're going to end up. So the fact that he goes and asks Pilate for the body when he knows that it's highly unlikely he's going to even get the body because of the crime he, Christ was accused of is kind of impressive too. Um, yeah. So he asks for the body of Jesus. And what happens? Pilate orders it to be given to him. Now, this tells us a little bit about what Pilate thinks about Jesus being guilty. Now, we already know that Pilate didn't actually think Jesus was guilty of the crime he was accused of. It says that earlier in Matthew, that he perceived that the real reason Jesus was handed over was because the Jews were jealous of the following Jesus had. But this confirms it. Here he is in in his role as an authority of Rome saying, yes, you can have the body, of this man accused of high treason against the empire, and you can bury him. Now that's something that could get Pilate in trouble with the uh, authorities that would be over him. Because they'd be like, wait, wait, wait. Guy accused of high treason, you gave his body and let it be buried? No, no, no. So it shows that Pilate does not actually think that Jesus was guilty of the crime of treason. uh, Which we know explicitly from earlier in the text, but then implicitly from this. The fact that Pilate actually gives the body. So Joseph gets the body. And remember, he's got three hours that this process is happening because he's not going to ask for the body until after Christ is dead. So he's going to Pilate, asking for the body. Pilate says yes. Now he has to go to the cross and get the body. It says in the Gospel of John he had someone with him, so he had help transporting the body and burying it. Then he has to get the body to a tomb, and you have to have a tomb prepared already. It's not like in two hours in that time you can just cut a tomb out of rock and put someone in it. They didn't, obviously didn't have the equipment that we would have to be able to do something like that. Uh, and so you have to have this all done within about a three-hour period of time. Luke 23 heightens the tension a little bit. Here in Matthew it says it was evening. So we know, okay, The Sabbath is getting close. Nightfall is getting close. Luke says it was about to begin. So they're coming down to the wire. Minutes, maybe a half hour, something like that. They're trying to get this finished up. This is where Joseph's riches matter in the passage. The fact that he had a tomb, his own new tomb, which was cut in the rock. So, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I'll take the body and uh, we'll just find a tomb laying around. No, you wouldn't just bury someone in someone else's tomb. So Joseph had a tomb... He lived in a town relatively close to where Jesus was crucified, so the tomb was within travel distance in the time frame they have. So he takes Jesus' body, wraps it up in a burial shroud, uh, shows it some respect, follows Jewish custom in that, lays it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. A new tomb means it had never been used before. This is impressive for a couple reasons. One, Joseph, in handling Jesus' dead body, is making himself ceremonially unclean, according to Old Testament law. So the next day on the Sabbath, there are things he's not going to be able to participate in because he's going to be unclean, because he touched a dead body. And when you touch a dead body, according to Old Testament law, you're unclean for about seven days, give or take a little, depending on the specific circumstances. So there's that. But also, the fact that Jesus was tried and convicted as a criminal... Now this isn't according to Old Testament law, but according to Jewish custom at the day, no one else would be able to be buried in the tomb that Jesus was put in. Because you wouldn't want to be buried with a criminal. That would be kind of an unclean type of thing. So Joseph has this tomb that's cut out. He puts Jesus in it, buries him there. He's going to have to build himself, get himself another tomb to have as his when he dies sometime. And these things are not cheap. To go and to hire someone to excavate a rock and cut a tomb in it big enough, not just for you, but for your family, is a lot of work and a lot of money. So, uh, yeah, this is not just some flippant thing that Joseph is doing. He's showing Jesus a lot of love uh, and a lot of compassion in his own way. And then he seals the tomb. So he rolls a stone to the entrance and then goes away. I tried to find a picture of this, but I couldn't find a good one online. So I'll try and explain it. If you don't follow along with the words, that's okay. Don't worry about it. But, so the way the tombs worked in Old Testament times, because when we think of someone being buried, we think you dig a hole in the ground, you put them in a coffin, you put the coffin on the ground and cover it with dirt. And that's not the way it worked in this time. So you would have a rock, and you would cut into the rock, and you would carve a chamber, basically, (coughs) large enough, you would have usually a first chamber and then the stone would go at the end of that first chamber and then the chamber behind that would be where bodies were actually laid and they weren't actually put in the ground, they were laid on slabs and wrapped in linens and perfumed and then they were sealed with a stone so as they decomposed obviously the smells wouldn't get out. So the stone that you would roll away, so you'd walk in, you'd have this outer chamber and then you'd have a door you know, yay big, give or take a little bit, and you'd have a stone that was disc-shaped that would cover that opening. And the way it worked is you would have a groove in the ground that was at an angle, and so you'd roll the stone, and however many people it took to move the stone could easily roll it into place, one or two people, depending on how large and heavy it was. And when you rolled it into that groove, it would go with gravity and slide down into it to kind of lock it in place, and then it would cover the opening. To move the stone out of that groove to open up the tomb was much harder. You would need extra people because you're working against gravity. You'd have to roll up the incline and then move it out of the way. So it wasn't something, because some people, they'll look at Jesus' death and his burial and resurrection, they'll say, well, Jesus wasn't actually dead. He was on the cross and he went into shock, but then being in the tomb, he was revived because it was cool and comfortable and he wasn't nailed to a tree anymore. And so he woke up, kind of revived, got a surge of adrenaline, pushed the stone out of the way and walked out of the tomb. That is an incredibly foolish and ignorant statement. It would have been impossible for him to do that. It would have been impossible for any one person, even one who was healthy, to move the stone out of the way once it was in place. And uh, with Pilate giving Joseph the body, Joseph then didn't actually take it off the cross. He went to the Roman guards that were there and said, you know, hey, here's my thing from Pilate, I get the body, okay. Then the Roman guards would take it off, and they would check to make sure Jesus was dead, again, even though they already had, because if you crucified someone and they didn't actually die, if you messed up, the guards that were in charge would be crucified. So if you were a guard, you made really sure that the person on the cross was dead, because if not, you were going to end up in their place. So Jesus Christ is dead, Jesus Christ is in a tomb, and that tomb is sealed. And according to Joseph, it's all over. Because what's he do? He rolls a stone to the entrance of the tomb and goes away. He doesn't wait around for Jesus to resurrect. He doesn't expect any of that to happen. He leaves. It's like, all right, I cared about this guy. I did these things for him. He's received a proper Jewish burial, and that's great. But it's over. It's all done. Joseph took Jesus' scourged, crucified, dead body, buried it in his own tomb, sealed the door, and went away. Can you imagine for a disciple of Jesus what that must have felt like? The guy you thought was going to come and literally save the world, save you from the Roman Empire, to handle his body, that it says in Isaiah, and it's poetry, so there's a little of the poetic license. But it says that Jesus was beaten so badly when he was crucified that you couldn't recognize him as human. His wounds were so severe that you couldn't recognize him as human. And it's not like someone walked by and it's like, why are they crucifying a giraffe? That doesn't make any sense at all. But the poetic license, the beating was incredibly severe. For him to handle that body, to physically handle the evidence that the person he thought was the Messiah and was going to save the world is dead. And then to wrap that body up, uh, perfume that body with spices, as the Gospel of John tells us, put that body in a tomb and seal the tomb. That feeling of finality, that feeling of it's over. I bet on this guy and I lost. It's all done. And he goes away. Because when someone's dead and you buried them, you don't hang around waiting for them to get back up. That's the end of it. So we also see a couple of things, uh, Chris and Spencer and the rest of us who have been preaching, over and over we've talked about how God's in control of everything that's happened. Christ is in control of the timeline of his crucifixion, and God is still in control here. The fact that they were able to get the body when he was committed of high treason is God in control of that situation. The fact that Joseph of Arimathea, who was afraid and who did everything in secret, came forward and had... Uh, the resources to actually bury Jesus within the time frame that they had, that's God in control. God is in control of Jesus being placed in the tomb. There should be no doubt, reading this, seeing everything that happened, Jesus Christ actually died. Jesus Christ was actually buried. His dead body is laying in the tomb. Then you've got verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. It's interesting in the gospel accounts, it's interesting in general in the gospels to read and see the way gospels portray women and how, they, how women are treated compared to how women were treated in the world at that time. It's really cool. But it's also interesting to see that during Jesus' death, the only people that are recorded as being present that were his uh, disciples or friends, obviously there were people who, who hated him and guards and everything around while he was hanging on the tree, but his only friends and followers were some women who were named, and then the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John and some other books in the New Testament. Everyone else fled, everyone else ran away, everyone else was afraid. They were there watching him die. Jesus' own mother was one of the women who was present at the cross while he was dying on it. And here, here are some of the women again. You've got Joseph of Arimathea. The rest of the 12 aren't here, the ones Jesus told, hey, I'm going to raise from the dead on the third day. You'd think maybe they'd be here. like, All right, the resurrection's coming. But no, they've gone their own way. And we see in some of the other Gospels, they thought it was over. Some of them had gone back to their jobs as fishermen, back to their other careers. They thought it was done. They thought they'd bet and they'd lost. But here are two Marys sitting by the tomb. If you've ever been to an interment, which is the part of a funeral uh, where the body is actually placed in the ground at the, so the graveside service, typically there's not sitting there, unless you've got someone who, you know, for whatever health reason needs to sit. Typically at an interment, people are standing. Why do people stand? Because you're not there very long. You're there long enough for someone to say a few words, put the body in the ground, and then you leave. You don't hang out. You might go and gather somewhere else for food or fellowship, something like that, but you don't hang out at the grave. And here they are, not just standing watching what Joseph is doing, but they're sitting there, sitting by the tomb, waiting for something to happen. So that is Jesus' friends and followers, what's going on with them. And Matthew kind of lays out how cool it is, how much God's in control, the fact that they got the body, that everything happened according to God's plan but also uh, the, fact, the fact that God's in control, and then also just the love that these people had for Jesus, the risks they took, and uh, the compassion they showed, even after he's dead, still showing that. Now, uh, we'll move to the other side and look not at his friends and followers, but some of what's happening with his enemies. So we're going to look at the chief priests and the Pharisees. I lumped Pilate together with enemies, mainly because he's in this paragraph on the sermon insert. He's kind of an enemy of Christ, kind of not, but it just fit. so. Chief priests and Pharisees, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, they gathered before Pilate. So what is the day after the day of preparation? It's the Sabbath. That's why the day before is called the day of preparation. There was a lot you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath, so you would prepare for it and do it the day before, and that includes things like cooking meals, because there were some cooking things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Some things with taking care of your fields or your livestock or whatever your livelihood was. So, on the Sabbath, the chief priests and Pharisees uh, are not resting. They are going to see Pilate. So, uh, commentators go back and forth about whether they were actually breaking the Sabbath. It's po- the things they do here, it's possible they could have done them without breaking Sabbath law, but they also may have. It depends on... How far they had to go, Pilate wasn't a Gentile, so it would depend on whether or not they actually went into his palace to talk to him or had him come out to them and kind of stood apart from him to keep separated, but that's not really super important or the point of the passage, just an interesting thing. But either way, the chief priests and Pharisees are not resting as would typically be expected, they're out seeing Pilate. So they come to Pilate, notice that they call him sir, showing him respect. Uh, buttering him up a little bit to get what they want. They call Jesus an imposter. According to Webster's Dictionary, an imposter is one that assumes a false identity or title for the purpose of deception. Now, if you've been here at all for Matthew, you know that the chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees are not at all fans of Jesus Christ. But the degree to which they hated him if it wasn't clear enough from them getting him crucified, the fact that they think he is a false messiah, that he's assumed this title specifically to deceive the people. So in their minds, as the religious rulers and kind of the people responsible for Israel, for Israel's spiritual health, they think there's this guy who's come who's just steering everyone away from God. Of course, in reality, the opposite's true, and the Pharisees and chief priests are the ones steering people away from God. But that's what they think. And now he's dead, but they still have to deal with it because he predicted that he would rise from the dead. They apparently were aware of this prediction. Jesus just didn't predict this to the 12, his closest followers. Other people were aware of it too. So they know he made this prediction. So they think, all right, what do we do about this? Well, he said the third day, so we only have to care about it till then. After that, if they steal the body, we can just point to it and say, yeah, but he said three days and it didn't happen. So the prophecy was false. So it's like, all right, how can we prevent his body from being taken before the third day? Well, we'll make the tomb secure. And you see in 66 what it means for them to make the tomb secure. It means sealing the stone and setting a guard. So setting a guard, that's kind of obvious. Posting guards. So if someone comes to move the stone, they're like, hey, what do you think you're doing? Oh, we're just moving this. Oh, no, you're not. Sealing the stone uh, would be putting a wax seal on it, probably with Pilate's inscription or some Roman inscription. And so you would go, someone would go to the tomb, see the seal and say, okay, this has been officially sealed by the Roman Empire. If I open this, I'm going to have trouble with Rome. And for a lot of people, especially if you're trying to open the tomb of someone who is crucified as a criminal, that would deter you. You'd be like, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth possibly dying. It's not worth possibly getting imprisoned or exiled from the empire. I'm just going to leave it be." So they want the tomb secured. They want a seal on the stone and a guard by the tomb uh, to prevent what they think is going to happen, that the disciples will steal the body and lie and say, hey, he rose from the dead. And this last phrase of theirs, the last fraud will be worse than the first. So the first fraud in their minds is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, preaching and teaching and basically leading Israel astray in their eyes. In actuality, pointing Israel towards God. The last fraud is the claim Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, he's a messiah, but he's not just a dead messiah, he's a risen messiah. And that's so much cooler and so much more powerful and so much better for those who believe in him and follow him than a messiah who just did a lot of cool things, said a lot of neat things, and then died. So that is their view of Christ and of uh, what's in the minds of the disciples. And so they go, Pilate, they want to cut this off at the pass. And what irony here that the people who should have recognized Jesus more than any other, the people who knew the scriptures better, who were the religious rulers of the day, completely rejected him when he was alive. Not all of them. We see Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, believed. There were a few others that believed. But in general, they rejected him. And now, even after death, they're trying to suppress what he was and what he did. They are cutting off the very source of life that they have. Pilate's response to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Kind of washing his hands of the matter like he did with Jesus. It's like, you've got your own guards. Take care of it yourself. Yes, I'll authorize you to do what you want, but I'm not doing this for you. You want to secure the tomb, you go secure the tomb. Here's my authorization, but I'm not posting Roman guards there. I'm not doing this. You go do it yourself. Take your temple guards. They can do it. So they go and they make the tomb secure. So not only, from the last paragraph, is Jesus dead, sealed in the tomb, that you can't, one person or even a couple of people can't just go and easily open up and take the body out of now you've got guards posted there who are watching, that even if the guards were overpowered and the body was taken, they could still say, yeah, we were there, we saw it happened." until we got conked on the head. They came and they stole the body. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And you've got the stone sealed, which is going to deter a lot of people from trying to break into the tomb because you've got more severe consequences now because Rome is involved. So Jesus Christ was actually dead, was actually buried, And the tomb was guarded and had some other precautions in place to prevent people from getting into it and taking the body. And all this, of course, is set up for what happens next week when he raises from the dead and just makes it that much sweeter. It would be incredibly sweet even without this. But now comes the part that's kind of weird with the sermon where I was looking at before. It's like, all right, so that's the sermon, but where's the preaching point? Like, Jesus is dead here's all these facts, which are cool, it's neat to see God in control of everything, it's great to have that reassurance, but what's the point? Like, he hasn't risen from the dead yet, what do we do with that? It would be wrong to conclude by saying, well, you've got the good response of Joseph and the women, and the bad response of the Pharisees and the other religious rulers, so you should have the good response, you know. When the opportunity comes to do something for Christ, whatever that looks like, you should do it. When the opportunity comes to sit and wait for Christ, you should do that. You should not go around saying he was an imposter, uh, that he's a fraud, uh, perpetrating that. Now, those statements are true statements, kind of, but they're not appropriate for us. Every response in this passage is a wrong response for us. The reason it's a wrong response is because Jesus Christ is not in the tomb anymore. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And it's really impossible to preach this passage and not have the main point be the same main point that it's going to be next week. That we don't serve a Christ who was put in a tomb and his body has been rotting there for 2,000 years. We serve and we believe in a Christ who died and was buried and walked out of the grave. He walked out of that tomb alive and he's still alive 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ is not in the tomb. And so the sermon title, Sitting Opposite the Tomb, is great for this sermon. But this isn't what we should be doing on a regular basis. We should not be sitting by the tomb because Jesus isn't in the tomb. Jesus is alive. I'm going to read, I don't have this on the screen. I'm going to read a passage, a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul Uh, one of the guys who wrote part of the New Testament is writing to a church that is struggling with the idea of Jesus raising from the dead and the idea of the dead being raised. And Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. If this is the end of the sermon, or the end of the gospel at chapter 27, this is a waste of all our time. It is a waste of your time to sit there and listen to me preach. It is a waste of my time to be up here preaching. It is a waste of time to come here. Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, he wasn't just this great teacher who taught things that we can all follow and live better lives. He wasn't just this guy who did these cool supernatural things that are fun to think about and look at. Because he's a guy who claimed that he was God and that he would raise from the dead. So if he didn't do that, he's either the worst liar who's ever walked the earth or the most mentally unstable person who ever walked the earth. And neither of those are someone you really want to emulate or follow. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, Christianity is a waste of time. Period. But he did raise from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. He is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us day and night. The Holy Spirit, for those who have trusted in Christ, who believe in Him, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God is in us. And this is the great news of this passage, because otherwise, this is a horrible passage. If it ends with Jesus just being dead, that's horrible news. But Jesus is not dead. And so the conclusion for us is not be like these people in the passage or be like these people in the passage. The conclusion is, remember this week that you serve a risen Christ, not a Christ who's in the tomb. You serve a Christ so powerful that death couldn't hold him. You serve a Christ so powerful that an empire that at that time basically ruled the world couldn't stand against him and change his plans. That an entire nation... The religious authorities of that nation couldn't stop what he had planned. And you serve a Christ who's not only powerful, but is loving. Look at the love that Joseph of Arimathea and the Marys had for this man. The things that they're willing to do in this passage. And if you read through the Gospels, you can begin to see why they had that love. You see how Jesus interacted with people, how he cared for people. And he still cares for people. He cares for you, and he cares for me. And he showed that caring ultimately by dying in our place. A horrible, incredibly painful, torturous death and raising from the dead. And that raising from the dead is what makes it possible for us to experience all the benefits of what he did and all the benefits of his love and to come close to a God from whom we were all far away because we were all, in one sense or another, the religious rulers and authorities. It's easy to read the Gospels and look and think, I would never have done that. But we would have because we've all had times in our lives we rejected Jesus Christ. And we said, no, not for me. So in closing, remember that we do not serve a man who is laying in a tomb. We serve the God-man who was raised from the dead. And amen to that. Because if not, we'd be in a lot of trouble. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for showing us through this, just reinforcing the idea that Christ actually died that he actually was buried, and that makes his resurrection that much sweeter when it happens next week, God. I pray for everyone in this room that uh, those times we're tempted to just sit by the tomb metaphorically, to try and do for ourselves, or just wait around for something to happen. Uh, When we think of you as dead and not alive, that you would remind us you are alive. You're alive in the literal, physical sense. You're alive in our lives. You're active and working. You have not abandoned us. You have not died again. Amen.